Okay, so we got some leaked audio recording admitting to climbing. Sick people. That was, that was your cue, you know. That's you. That was started right at the like when Millie's talking about, oh, and we're going to try to do a kick. They were trying to do that before you even were sworn in. That's right. Trying to overthrow your life. Well, with Millie, uh, let me see that. I'll show you an example. He said that I wanted to attack Iran. Isn't that amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came out. Look. This was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This was him. This was the Defense Department and him. We looked at some. This was him. This wasn't done by me. This was him. All sorts of stuff. It's pages wrong. I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Except it is like highly confidential secret. It's a secret information. Look at this. You attack. And Hillary would print that out all the time. By the way, isn't that incredible? Yeah. I was just saying, because we're talking about it. And he, you know, he said, he wanted to attack Iran and what? Well, he said it is. This was done by the military, given to me. Uh, I think we can probably. I'm Ben Micellis, joined by Karen Friedman Agnifilo from Legal AF, and what you just heard was an exclusive audio recording that CNN got its hands on. That is the audio recording that is referenced in special counsel Jack Smith's indictment. This was a meeting that took place in July of 2021 at Bedminster with Donald Trump, a staffer and ghostwriters for Mark Meadows' book met. And we read the transcript. We had seen in special counsel Jack Smith's indictment, everything that we just heard written, but hearing it just, in my opinion, makes it sound so much worse. And also, before getting your view on this, Karen Friedman Agnifilo, I want to play from the Brett Baer interview with Donald Trump, how Donald Trump responded when Brett Baer confronted him with, at that time, we didn't have the audio recordings, but just the transcript that was included in special counsel Jack Smith's complaint play the clip i don't want to dwell on it but according to the indictment you were here at bedminster on july 21st 2021 after you're no longer president and you were recorded saying that you had a document detailing a planned attack on another country that was prepared by the u.s military for you when you were president the iran attack plan you remember that Ready? You were recorded. It wasn't a document. Okay. I had lots of paper. I had copies of newspaper articles. I had copies of magazines. I know. This is specifically a quote. You're quoting on the recording saying the document was secret, adding that you could have declassified it while you were president, but quote, now I can't. You know, this is still secret, highly confidential. And the indictment cites the recording and the testimony from people in the room saying you showed it to people there that day. So you say on this, on tape. It says just the opposite. Karen.
return your response. So this recording. Espionage Act, mishandling national defense information. So these are not only crimes, but they're crimes that pose a serious risk to our national security. How could these not be indicted and brought promptly? Now, they haven't been yet, so, you know, we're, we're still waiting. Um, and the fact that we're still, the fact that documents are still being recovered from the constructive possession of Donald Trump, and for those, you know, criminal law purists, you can actually possess something, which is when I have it in my hot little hands, or you can constructively possess something when you have it in an area over your control to which you have access, like a storage facility, right? <laughs> and, you know, the fact that these documents are still being found, you asked the question, Michael, why didn't they execute search warrants at all of Donald Trump's yeah. properties? Now, for 30 years, I was a federal prosecutor, and I made it a point to play by the rules. So what are the rules? Question. The rules are, if we're going to apply for a search warrant for a particular location, we need to meet an evidentiary standard. We need to have probable cause to believe evidence of crime will be found in a particular place at the time we execute the search warrant. Now, if DOJ has been playing by the rules all along, and I think they have, even if they haven't moved quickly enough, um, the fact that they didn't get uh, search warrants for Bedminster or Trump Tower or another search warrant for Mar-a-Lago tells me that maybe they didn't feel like they could meet that evidentiary burden of probable cause, so they didn't apply for those search warrants. Does that make sense to me? Not a lot of sense. What makes even less sense, Michael, is how is it that the target of the criminal investigation can hire people to conduct a search for the documents he stole? I don't understand that. And how can that team that's conducting those searches be overseen by a team of Donald Trump's lawyers who have already been caught in lies, signing certifications that everything has been turned over after a diligent search. None of this, none of this makes any law enforcement sense to this old career prosecutor. So do me a favor, if you would, because you mentioned both the Espionage Act as well as um, theft of government documents. Let's start off with the Espionage Act. Now, if I'm not mistaken, that goes back to like the early 1900s, like 19, was it 17 or 1918, something like that. Um, can you can you speak on that for my listeners, just so that they fully understand what the uh, Espionage Act is, and more importantly, how does it actually relate to this specific case? So the Espionage Act is kind of an umbrella um, description of a number of federal statutes that were enacted as part of the overarching Espionage Act. One of those statutes, one of the crimes, is mishandling national defense information. Importantly, that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be classified. It doesn't matter. If Donald Trump magically in his mind declassified things or not, it doesn't matter if Donald Trump actually followed the protocol of declassification and declassified things, which we all know he didn't do, right? Mm -hmm. So because the, the search warrant for Mar-a-Lago had those 
three crimes, and this is why this is so important. When we apply for a search warrant, we have to tell the judge what federal statute we believe has been violated and what evidence we will find to help prove the violation of that federal statute. And the prosecutors and the FBI agents put three in the affidavit in support of the search warrant for Mar-a-Lago. It's the documents crimes, it's the obstruction of justice, and it's the Espionage Act mishandling of national defense information. And I, I would have to go into my big blue book of laws of U.S. federal code, don't leave home without it, to give you a more precise definition of exactly the nature of the information that qualifies as national defense information under that particular statute. But the prosecutors and the FBI agents believe that was just one of the crimes Donald Trump committed. Right. Chris, when I was thinking about the espionage, I was trying to have trying to figure out how it sort of relates to Donald. I mean, the three names that always come up when you think of the Espionage Act, right? The Rosenbergs, you have Assange and Snowden. Those are generally the three that people relate to, even though I believe that there were more. But I'm trying to figure out exactly how it applies specifically to what Donald did. Now, we know he had these documents, and stupidly, he acknowledged that he knew about the documents being there. He took them. The smarter move for him would have been to say, I have no idea who packed it up. I, it, not, it had nothing to do with me, right? Exactly. That's what he always does. I have no idea. I leave the White House. I'm not, I'm not packing my stuff. I have people that pack, right? That's what, you know, that's what I would suspect that somebody like Donald Trump would have said. How specifically does this relate to Donald, despite the fact that he did not do that and acknowledge the taking of the documents? Yeah, so two things on that, Michael. First of all, you're right. When we hear espionage, we think, oh, somebody who's selling our national secrets to a foreign power or to an enemy of the United States. Yes, that's one kind of espionage. But it can just be unlawfully taking and unlawfully retaining what is, uh, what is government in these indictments and potential incarceration by stating I have documents that are national security um, involved that involve national security and that are detrimental to the national security of the country you really want to play with me you want to fuck with me guys Cerise, do you really want to burn down the country look I'm an older guy now and so I have limited time here anyway 
you keep coming at me like this, you keep coming at my family, we're going to release these documents to Iran, to Saudi Arabia, to North Korea, to, you know, to America's adversaries. Um, that's what I believe that he was ultimately going to do with it, or at least he thought about it in that way. I also believe exactly what you just said, that he was going to use those documents to financially better himself because he knows that he's guilty of all of these things. He knows, for example, um, that there was going to be a lot of litigation against him. And so this is sort of a, um, uh, let's just call it a slush fund for him based on documents. They can easily go to Putin and say, hey, you want to know where all our missile silos are? You want to know some dirty shit on um, Macron? Or you want to know about Iran? I have those documents. You want them? I have a Swiss bank account under so-and-so name. I could see Donald doing that. Don't get me wrong. You know, he's slick enough. But then you brought up the other one, which was the theft of government property. And that's uh, known as 18 U.S.C. 641. it's very similar, I guess, in nature to the Espionage Act because it makes it a crime to steal, to embezzle, or to knowingly convert with intent. And again, he acknowledges the intent for your own personal gain, the property, uh, or to sell, convey, or dispose of any record, voucher, money, or something of value issued by a Department of the United States government. Well, and, here, and here's the beauty. Here's the beauty of Donald Trump's post about those documents and he you know he actually admitted to two crimes in one post on his third rate social media platform which he should rename from truth social to confession social because he uses it to confess to crimes he said first of all he said i took the documents from the white house more openly and transparently than other presidents Do you know what a gift that was to Jack Smith's special counsel and the prosecution team? Because one of the things that I have been sort of puzzling through is we all know Donald Trump wasn't down on his knees in the Oval Office collecting documents of himself and putting them in boxes, Right. right? Other people did that for him. Other people, I'm quite sure, did it at his direction. And then somebody shipped it down to Mar-a-Lago. Donald Trump wasn't loading those boxes onto a pallet or onto a plane. That gives him a natural defense, a natural opportunity. I don't know. I have no... Are you kidding me? Do you think with the way I sit up on high, I'm going to be loading boxes and moving them around myself? I have no idea what they brought down to Mar-a-Lago. But... So we had to prove, we, the royal we, I was a prosecutor for so long I can't break the habit. They, the prosecutors, have to prove that he knowingly, and and perhaps even intentionally, depending on the intent requirement, knew what what was being taken to Mar-a-Lago. Once you post, I openly and transparently took these things more openly and transparently than other presidents. Thank you for checking off that element of documents more openly and transparently than other presidents. (laughs) 
than other Said he took classified documents more transparently than other. That's yet another confession of his guilt. Post is too long. No, your post is too long. No, your post is too long. On death sentence. Post too long. No, your post is too long. No, your post is too long. I got Thank You by Ari Malber of Tennessee. And Michael Popak is now my friend on TikTok. So it's Popak. Hmm. Got a goose nibbling. Nibbling on my toes or my shoes. Post is too long, nah. Your space is too small. Let's insert a book. The Nazis to burn. Okay. Admitted to an element of the crime. There's also an.
told top prosecutor Glenn Kirshner and Michael Cohen revealed likely charges for current crimes. Trump the implicit or an inferential admission of guilt in that same post. He said, what about Hillary? After she was subpoenaed, her emails were subpoenaed, she deleted them or didn't produce them. She violated the subpoena by making it. What about her? You didn't go after mm. her. Well, inferentially, what has he just admitted to? After he was subpoenaed for documents that belonged to the federal government, he didn't produce them by using Hillary as an example of what is crime in his estimation that went unaddressed by the Department of Justice. I did the same thing, so you can't come after me. That is another huge admission, but it's an inferential admission instead of a direct admission. But, I, you know... That's why you say, when you say, Michael, you know, Donald Trump is a pretty crafty criminal. I'm not putting words in your mouth, but if you're stealing certain things to extort the United States government, right, that's pretty crafty, I think. But how can you be that crafty on the one hand and be so stupid to post admissions to the very crimes that are being investigated? I can't really sort of rectify those two things. So I can give you the answer to that. You can be both, right? He's devious in his intent, which was to take documents that he believed would continue to give him power and would give him potential financial benefit. But you could also be stupid in terms of your responses for why you took it. You see, I never said Donald Trump is smart. He knows how to play the media very, very well. He knows how to play people, how to read a room. But now you put him with his back against the wall and you confront him, as the government is doing, with the taking of classified documents. Stupid is a year and a half earlier, the FBI had reached out, or I should say NARA reached out to him and demanded the return of these documents that they knew he took. And then they pussyfooted around with him for over a year until he finally turned over some documents. And then he had this Christina Bob, thanks to Boris Epstein, another asshole who goes ahead, right, and has her sign off on a document attesting that there's nothing else that's there. All right. Lo and behold, there's an inside mole, and I have often stated, and I still believe it, though it's my opinion, that it's Javanka, it's Jared and Ivanka that are providing this information. And then they get the magistrate to sign off on a warrant, Garland, the whole line, because obviously it's not just some local magistrate that signed off on this warrant to go raid Marlardo. And so they go, they do, and what do they find? Exactly where they said that the documents are. The documents are top secret. Some are the highest of secret. And then they take those as well. Now, again, going back to what I had said on August 31, right after the raid, the same day or the day after the raid, you got to go and you got to look. Where's Waldo? Where's Donald Trump been? Because rest assured, you need to find out not only where he was and where he potentially left additional documents, but who showed up there. And if they showed up there, let's say it's a foreign agent. How do we know that he didn't let them photocopy it or take a picture with their phone or give them a copy or give them the original? Who knows? That's the problem with this whole issue. There's more here than just meets the eye. 
Why should you and I as U.S. citizens, why should anyone, my listeners, anyone, why should we be concerned that the former president of the United States took classified documents, put them in an unsecured location, moved them around from place to place to place, and potentially showed them to our adversary, putting the entire country, our lives, in jeopardy, and basically putting the entire national security of this country at risk. We should not have to think this way. Yeah, one of my one of my grievances with my old agency, the Department of Justice, and I, I give them their props when they earned them. I sat through the seven week Oath Keepers trial and I oh. know the prosecutors because the two lead prosecutors are my colleagues. I tried the first murder case with Catherine Ricosi who, you know, was is a remarkable prosecutor. And I say all of that because I want the American people to know they were extraordinarily well represented in the Oath Keepers prosecution by those Department of Justice prosecutors. But boy, here is the grievance I have with the way DOJ has kind of pussyfooted around Donald Trump. We know he has compromised our national security. We don't know precisely what he did with the documents right. or, or, as you say, who he who he showed them to, who he copied them for and sent them to. We don't know. But what we do know is by the very act of stealing top secret and SCI special compartmented information. I did an espionage case when I was a prosecutor in the Army. I got all the high-speed security clearances. And I'll tell you, Michael, I was scared like all get out that I was going to say or do something that I shouldn't. And I was, I, you know, you take that deadly seriously when you are involved in those kind of materials. So we know he compromised our nation's security. Have we made any effort to lock him up, to interrogate him, to debrief him, to try to get from him how he compromised our national security? No. Instead, we pussyfoot around for a year, a year and a half. Oh, please, won't you return them? Thank you so much. Oh, now we have to subpoena them. Oh, wait, you didn't give them all to us. Let us get some more. Oh, please, Mr. President. What, what, what in the world? is driving what appears to be the timidity, the unwillingness of the Department of Justice to go at this hard in the interest of protecting our national security. That I will never understand. I think the rule of law has a great big black eye right now. And I'm not saying Donald Trump will never be charged. I still believe he will. And if he's not, I believe that takes us in the direction of the end of our republic. I believe he will be charged, but he cannot be charged in a timely manner because that train left the station a very long time ago. Well, do you not think that the DOJ has a black eye as a direct result of an unconstitutional remand of a U.S. citizen to prison because he refused to waive a First Amendment constitutional right? And of course, I'm referring to myself. I'm referring to Bill Barr working in conjunction with clearly Donald Trump for the sole purpose of preventing me from I mean, what about that as a as a black eye? And then to make matters even worse, you get a guy like Jeffrey Berman, 
By the way, I filed a bar complaint against him yesterday for exactly the words that came out of his mouth that are in his book. Where I turned around and I said, you know what, enough is enough. This guy decides that he's going to hold on to information such as Bill Barr and the Department of Justice, this guy Edward O'Callaghan, reaching out to exerting pressure to whitewash my case for the benefit of Donald Trump, decides not to say anything, even though he had recused himself already and it was in the hands of Robert Kazami, and they were talking about the case all the time, according to the book. And maybe I'll file a complaint against him too. But at the end of the day, what do they? What does he do? He keeps it to himself. Ultimately, of course, Trump loses. Thank God, the election, new administration. He's terminated. He goes on. He leaves. I think he's at Freed Frank now, the law firm. And then he decides, you know what? I'm going to take this information and I'm going to write a book about it for profit. Something seems wrong. It's either unethical or illegal or both. And I can tell you something. I'm dying to see what the New York State Bar Association is planning on doing with this case. Well, Michael, when you talk about people who are in government service, who sit on information that they know about crimes being committed by, let's just use Trump as an example, when they sit on it, when they decline to report it to the appropriate authorities, and then they wait until after they leave government service and they profit off of it by putting it in a book. There is a crime called misprision of a felony, 18 United States Code, Section 4. And it says when you become aware of a federal felony um, and you fail to timely report it to the appropriate authorities, you've actually committed the federal crime of misprision of a felony. And I haven't seen anybody held accountable for, like the Boltons of the world who will sit on incriminating information, crimes being committed by high federal officials, not reported, and then profit off of it later. I don't understand why we're not enforcing that particular federal statute. Um, you know, one way that I am personally trying to attack that problem, you know, and I had some success when I retired as a federal homicide prosecutor and I saw the problem of a quarter of a million unsolved murder cases in our country with a quarter of a million families who sit by the phone every night waiting for a call to come from a detective saying we got a break in your loved one's case. You know, I tackled that problem by drafting a federal bill, um, the homicide <laughs> victims the Homicide Victims Families Rights Act. And, and thank sure. goodness I had Eric Swalwell, Representative Swalwell, a former Great prosecutor, who, who, um, who let me work with his legislative director for years. And just a few months ago, that was signed into law by President Biden. And there's help coming to homicide families. I see the same thing with respect to ethics and government service. We have failed miserably on, on requiring ethical conduct of our federal employees and high government officials. And I think there is not an easy fix, but something that we can easily put in place to change the culture. And that's my next windmill that I'm tilting at. We all take an oath of office. I took it many times as an army jag and as a federal prosecutor to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I took it too at the State Department. If we add one simple clause to that statute, 
That statute, uh, that, that oath, I'm sorry, that oath is given pursuant to a federal statute that says this language must be given. All we need to do is add one clause. And I will timely report any information that I come into possession of that there have been crimes committed by high government officials or federal employees, period. Because now whistleblowers aren't the exception. Whistleblowing isn't just the norm. It's part of your sworn obligation. And if everybody in government was required to report federal crimes being committed by their federal uh, fellow federal government employees, you know, that would, I think, put everybody on point that, oh, man, it's going to turn me in. It's going to change the culture. Because right yeah. now the culture is, I don't have to report anything. I'm going to sit on it and I'm going to profit from it later. We have to have a renaissance of ethics in government yeah. or we are going to continue to be in the, in the hole that we're in. Well, I, love Glenn Kirchner. What a great yeah, I just want to give you a line or uh, a paragraph from the complaint that I put in just to get your impression on it. So I go, in his book, Mr. Berman writes, and then I'm going to quote, Trump's Justice Department kept demanding that I use my office to aid them politically, and I kept declining, dot, 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 in ways just tactful enough to keep me from being fired. Mr. Berman, despite his self-aggrandizing refusal to capitulate to the pressure campaign, failed and failed miserably to uphold his ethical and legal obligation to report the occurrence. By failing to do so, Mr. Berman deprived me of valuable information that could have been used in my defense. The question of why he kept this information to himself and a few insiders is obvious and again answered by Mr. Berman's own words to keep me from being fired. That is, until the new administration was elected, his position terminated, and thus affording him the opportunity in September of 2022, four years later, to reveal the information in a for-profit book. Could you imagine this? I mean, this is the guy who wore the big boy pants in the Southern District of New York. You know, then there's one additional line. So I go, Mr. Berman's refusal to notify anyone was intentional, despite knowing and acknowledging the improper pressure being applied by Maine Justice. In fact, Mr. Berman states so in the book, and he writes, and I quote, I wanted people to understand the full scope of the outrageous and improper political interference by Trump's Justice Department in the cases of the Southern District of New York that demonstrates what Trump is capable of and what he's likely to do. Berman further states, and I quote, and it also provides a frontline view of just how vulnerable our justice system is. Well, our justice system is vulnerable because of people like him. He's being, he was being pressured to obstruct justice, and he did nothing about it. And let me, let me read the one sentence that is misprision of a felony. Whoever, having knowledge of the actual commission of a felony cognizable by a court of the United States, in other words, a federal felony, conceals and does not as soon as possible make known the same to the appropriate authority, shall be imprisoned for three years. So right now, the culture is federal employees and high government officials can sit on evidence of crime of which they're aware. They can sit on it. They can just decide, you know what? I'm not going to report it. I'm going to profit off of it later. Or 
if you want to give them the benefit of the doubt for doing it for a less nefarious purpose, I want to be one of the guardrails that stays inside government and tries to manage the crime that's going on by Trump and company to minimize the damage to the United States. You know, you may think that you are well-intentioned, but what you are doing is you're failing to report crime of which you are aware and you have a legal obligation to do it. So that's why we have to change this culture. I totally agree with you. And I'm going to keep you posted on what happens with the New York State Bar. So let me move on for a second. The Trump Organization, this is, of course, via the district attorney here in New York, Alvin Bragg, they convicted the Trump Organization on 17 counts of tax-related fraud. So let's do something. Let's speculate. What do you think it ultimately means for the Trump Organization? Do you think that the Trump Organization is done? And then there's Alan Weisselberg, the CFO. Is Weisselberg the only one, in your opinion, that's going to go to do some jail time, but, you know, as a result of these charges? What's your gut telling you? Yeah, so first of all, I'm not, I don't know anything about the business world, but it seems to me that when you have a company or a corporation that's been convicted of 17 felonies, they're basically done, right? No reputable lending institution is going to want to have anything to do with them, even the less than reputable lending institutions that I think sometimes did business with Trump or the Trump board, hoping they were going to get some bang for their buck, if only access and influence. I don't even think they're going to want to do business with the Trump organization. This coupled with the Tish James lawsuit, because this puts wind in the sails of that civil suit and seeking a quarter of a billion dollars and seeking business in New York in the future. I, I think Trump org is done now. I have, frankly, the question that is more important is why in the world was Donald Trump not charged? Because you had enough evidence to charge his organization, his namesake, his chief financial officer, his right-hand man. You know Donald Trump was benefiting from these crimes, probably directing them as well. And most importantly, you had Pomerantz and Dunn, the prosecutors who were working the investigation, come to Alvin Bragg and say, boss, we got enough to indict. We got enough to convict. Convict. And Alvin Bragg said, "No, nope, I'm killing the investigation." And then I'm going to quote from the prosecution's closing argument in the Trump org prosecution. The prosecutor said to the jury in closing, "The evidence shows that Donald Trump explicit, explicitly okayed tax fraud." Well, if that's the case. If the evidence has proved that, then can you explain to me why Donald Trump wasn't charged? Alvin Bragg is the answer, but we don't know why Alvin Bragg declined to charge him. Will anybody else go to prison beyond Weisselberg? And we have a, we have a saying in D.C. It's called play in the 50s. It's when a cooperator comes in and kind of pretends to cooperate, but still is protecting others and holding some stuff back. It feels to me like Alan Weisselberg was playing the 50s. Maybe I'm wrong. About that, you know, I don't know if he was really the well. The, the let, let me say this to you, Glenn. Right. What's that? Yeah, well, let me say this to you. So, I think the um, the counsel uh, was a guy named Joshua Steinglass, and he's mm -hmm. the one I think that made that comment. But I will tell you, as a direct result of his closing, the jury did not believe Alan Weisselberg. They believed he was lying exactly on the point that you mentioned. 
I provided testimony to the DA you know, I, uh, over 13 times. And this was one of the topics. And I expressed to them that every single thing that goes on at the Trump organization is done at the direction of and with the sign off of Donald J. Trump. And they had a lot of those documents. So no one in the jury believed that what Alan Weisselberg was talking about, how he was falling on the sword, that Donald didn't know about it, that he doesn't know about grossing up and so on. Not a single juror believed. That's why you had such a quick deliberation and such a determination of conviction on 17 counts. My question to you then is Alan Weisselberg was given a sweetheart deal. Five months, which would turn out to 100 days in Rikers, if he told the truth and he cooperated. I'm not so sure he told the truth, so I'm very curious to see what the DA's office is going to do in regard to the misinformation or the attempted deflection away from Donald when sentencing comes up. Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see what the government, what the prosecutors represent to the court at the time Weisselberg is sentenced. Are they going to say he was a bang-up cooperator who did everything he could? Or are they going to say, we think he played games, therefore he should get a whole lot more than that five months we agreed to? I don't know. That's, you know, devil's in the details there. I mean, how could they possibly turn around and say that he was a great witness, he cooperated, he provided, you know, truthful testimony, when the jury that you picked comes back and says, we think Alan is full of shit, he's lying, we know that Donald knew because there are signatures or mark-offs and it's his apartment, it was his leases on the vehicles, he's the one who benefited, and they come back unanimous, 17 counts, guilty in what, under 10 hours of deliberation. I just think it's for Alvin Bragg, it's a very, very uh, hard thing for him to do at this point. And I think it was stupid of Alan Weisselberg. But I want to ask you, because I have a second part to the same question. How, and again, in your opinion, will this affect the Tish James suit against the Trump organization? And where does Alvin Bragg go from here? I mean, because he said on Ari Melber that the Trump probe is still ongoing. And, of course, Bragg just uh, apparently brought in yet another prosecutor to look at some of the crimes of Donald Trump. He, he's reinvigorating his investigation into Trump, and he brought, I forget the gentleman's name from the Department Matthew, of Justice. Matthew, uh, Matthew Colangelo. Yes, Colangelo, who was at DOJ, and before that he was with Tish James at the New York Attorney General's office and had been investigating Trump. Um, so maybe, I mean, I'm not ever going to take out and brag at his word, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens and we'll see if Donald Trump is ever, uh, indicted. Uh, but so how does it impact this James civil suit? So in, in a couple of ways, one, any evidence that was developed during the course of the prosecution of the Trump war can certainly be handed over to Tish James and that can be incorporated into her civil suit, um, but then the flip side of it is nothing that happens in one trial court case serves as any kind of precedent for what happens in another trial court case, right? And one was criminal, one was civil. But I think there's some atmospheric precedent. There's some wind in the sails. Because if you can convict Trump work of a you know decade and a half long uh, uh, pattern of financial fraud 
invasion? Well, how hard is it going to be to prove by a preponderance of the evidence, which is the standard in a civil case, as opposed to beyond a reasonable doubt, which was the evidentiary burden in the criminal prosecution? And a much, much, much higher burden. Yeah. How hard is it going to be to make the civil case? against Trump and his adult children. I think Tish James has got this, and I think she's got it easily. Yeah, me too. Now, Glenn, one thing I do just want to correct you on, um, in Tish James's 220-page lawsuit, a lot of people say this, the exact term that Tish James used was a benchmark of $250 million. That doesn't mean that she's asking for $250. That's the base. I believe that... When she finally puts pen to paper and they figure out the extent of the criminality over this decade plus, this 13 years or so, I believe the number is going to be more in the line of about $750 million. That's my Good. belief. And again, because I know uh, so, much, so much of the information. Another thing is the, the uh, DA's office and the AG's office were actually working in tandem. So whatever documents, for example, whatever testimony that I provided to the DA, the DA shared with the AG and vice versa. So they have everything now, which is, again, exactly why, and I'm with you on this one, I believe Tish James has this and has it easily. Now, Trump says that because Twitter withheld Hunter Biden information, that we should terminate the Constitution. Shouldn't this terminate his run for the presidency? I mean, seriously, it just goes against the oath of office. It goes against every principle that we know. Not to mention it reinforces his criminal intent, his corrupt mens rea, his guilty state of mind all day long when he says we should terminate the Constitution and reinstall me as president or rerun the election. That just reinforces Donald Trump's criminal intent. You know, the defining moment where I believe prosecutors had evidence that they could use to prove beyond a reasonable doubt Donald Trump's corrupt intent was when we learned of that Oval Office meeting with DOJ officials where they were telling him there was no fraud undermining the election's results. And Donald Trump said, what? I don't care. Just say there was and leave the rest to me and my Republican allies in Congress. That is proof beyond a reasonable doubt of Donald Trump's criminal intent. The only thing we need, Michael, is to get an indictment, get a prosecutor to plant his or her feet in the well of a court in front of 12 citizens sitting in a jury box as the conscience of the community. Donald Trump will be indicted even quicker, I mean, will be convicted even quicker than the Trump organization was ah. convicted, which was like, what, two days, mm -hmm. bang, right? Mm -hmm. We just need to get to that point to protect our dang democracy. Glenn, I'm not sure if it was even two days. I think it was like 10 hours of deliberation. Like nine hours over the course. Yeah, something like that. Right, because yeah. then I know that the last um, statements made by counsel um, ended up on a Friday, and so they reconvened on Monday, and boom, they announced uh, the you know decision 10 hours later, and I don't know, it's, it's crazy. But let me ask you this then, why in your opinion, why don't Trump supporters ever just jump off the goddamn Trump train already? I mean, he's broke, he has a plethora of legal troubles, 
He says what he wants, right, including terminate the Constitution. He's having dinner with white supremacists and racists and saying this, the dumbest shit that anyone can imagine. I mean, just all of it. So why do they stay? Because we have folks in this country, as we both know, who are racist, who are white supremacists, who are misogynists, who are xenophobic. And because Donald Trump speaks their language and because Donald Trump gives permission to their hate and makes it fashionable, it's reinforcing to them when Donald Trump has dinner with Nazis. They like it. You know, I've, I've often jokingly said, you know, I, I grew up on the New York Giants. My pop was a high school football coach. He was a Giants fan, so I was a Giants fan. And then the Army moved me to the Washington, D.C. area in 1990. And for no good reason, I started to root for the Washington football team. And they've largely been losers, but I stick with them. People stick with a team even when it's a losing team. Donald Trump is a losing team. He's, you know, he's owed for I don't know how many now, right? Mm -hmm. But people are going to stick with him because he hates the way they ate and they love that. It's just, I just don't get uh. it. There are so many others in the GOP, and we'll call them Donald Trump 2.0s. Let's look at Ron DeSantis. I don't think Ron DeSantis is any better, to be honest with you, than, than Donald. He's smarter than Donald. He's slicker. I think he could be as cruel as Donald, he has his own certain ideas. I don't, and I will not, you know, cast him as a racist uh, or a white supremacist. I don't know him or uh, never seen anything to suggest that, but he's certainly um, an anti-vaxxer. We certainly know that. Uh, We know that there are things about him that mirror Donald. So I call him Donald Trump 2.0. Why not just get behind somebody like DeSantis? Why stick it out with a guy who has now demonstrated that he has lied to you at least 50,000 times since coming down the escalator. And the part that gets me the most, and since we're on Florida and Ron DeSantis, I don't understand why the Cuban-American, especially the wealthy Cuban-American crowd down there in South Miami, why they support Donald. Do they not understand that he wants to be Everything that they ran away from, everything that they hated about Cuba, Donald wants to create. Yeah, some, I think there, there is this hatred of the other. And, you know, the other is not just minorities or folks who practice a different religion or who are undocumented. Um, the other is also the, the Democrats. And there are some people who are so desperate to own the libs, as they put it, to combat you know, wokeness, as they put it, all of which is just idiocy, quite frankly. Um, But because Donald Trump will forever be battling the other on the political front, they're going to stick with a guy like that. And I'm going to go back to the hate. I mean, don't underestimate the the galvanizing power of hate. It's It's a more powerful force than love, in my opinion. Hate really does galvanize. It pulls people together. When you you and I hate the other the same, we got that going for us, even if we have nothing else going for us, right? Because Donald Trump hasn't appreciably improved the lives of anybody. Um, so people can be dirt poor, but man, we're holding on to that hate that Donald gives us. 
I don't think DeSantis, he may have that in him. He did kidnap asylum seekers, kidnapping by inveiglement, mm-hmm. which is an express um, uh, a subsection of kidnapping under the federal law. Kidnapping by inveiglement means fooling or tricking or deceiving somebody uh, to go from point A to point B by lying to them. That's what DeSantis and Abbott did. But I don't think I don't think DeSantis has galvanized the hate vote yet. But give him time. You know, Lord knows we've seen that hate um, during World War II. Uh, I mean, certainly that's what the Nazi Reich was, you know, all predicated on, right? Most of these people didn't like each other, you know, they didn't know each other, they're from different cultures, different backgrounds, but, yep, the hatred certainly um, united them to try to take over the entire world. Well, let me just jump ahead for a second and ask you about the January 6th committee, because I understand that they're going to make some criminal referrals. Who do you think will be the subject of those referrals? And what do you think that the charges will be? On top of that, how serious are these referrals likely to be taken by the DOJ? Because we just don't see a lot of action. I mean, let's compare it then to the Mueller team and to the fact that they chose not to send it out for criminal referrals. What do you think is going to happen here? Yeah, so criminal referrals by Congress have met with mixed success, right? Let's look at the last four criminal referrals they made. They referred Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro for contempt of Congress, and DOJ prosecuted them. They referred Mark Meadows and Dan Scavino for contempt of Congress for the precise same crime, and a crime they inarguably committed. There's no argument that they didn't fail to comply with congressional subpoenas, and DOJ has not indicted uh, Mark Meadows or Dan Scavino. So... Why do you think that's so? Why do you think that's so? Well, if you ask me, because I'm kind of a law and order guy, I would say it's because they're intending to roll those two men into the larger 371 conspiracy to commit offenses against or defraud the United States. That's how I read that, but I could be wrong. It could be because they were, you know, higher up in the political hierarchy and we didn't want to, you know, intrude and set the precedent that we're going to go after a chief of staff and blah, blah, effing blah, political calculations, not factual or legal calculations. And let me go back because this one sticks in my craw to this day, even though it was 2019. Remember, a bipartisan Senate Intel Committee referred for criminal investigation and possible prosecution, Don Jr., Kushner, uh, Bannon, uh, Sam Clovis, and Eric Prince. Now, that was Bill Barr's Department of Justice, where criminal referrals of Donald Trump's criminal associates and family members went to die. You know, Bill Barr wasn't going to authorize prosecution Mm -hmm. of those people. He was going to protect Donald Trump's interests. But so the point is criminal referrals are recommendations. They're suggestions. They don't have any binding effect on the Department of Justice. In fact, sometimes the Department of Justice takes a little bit of exception because we exercise independent prosecutorial discretion. Don't go telling us who you think we should prosecute because that feels political. But here's the thing. When a co-equal branch of government has done the kind of exhaustive deep dive investigation into an attack on our democracy that the J6 committee did, and when they package up those thousand plus transcripts and million plus exhibits, 
and issue a report that sets out why the evidence shows Donald Trump and company committed federal offenses, and they give that to we the people, and they give it to the Department of Justice. Yeah, the Department of Justice will take it very seriously. And let me, let me add this. The head of the J6 investigative team is a guy named Tim Heafy. He hired, he was hired to head up the investigative team. You saw him sitting right in the middle of the panel at the last J6 public hearing, right next to Representative Benny Thompson. And he, he and I started together. He and I handled murder cases and RICO cases together. He is one of the best RICO prosecutors uh, the Department of Justice has ever seen. He hired a whole batch of former federal prosecutors, which is why this J6 investigation has been conducted expertly, in part, in my opinion. What we prosecutors do at the end of an investigation is we draft what we call a CIM, a case impression memo or a prosecution report. And we put everything in there that proves that crimes were committed before we make a decision whether to seek an indictment or not. I have a feeling when we read this report that's going to be issued by the J6, it's going to be a CIM. It's going to be just like a prosecution report. It's going to be so damn compelling in documenting and detailing the evidence of crime by Trump and company that it will put enormous pressure on the machinery of government to indict the crimes that have been proved. Yeah, well, it doesn't seem like anything seems to light a fire under Merrick Garland's ass because there are so many things that could have and should have been done already. But I agree with you. I believe that it will be that type of a memo, and I believe that it will come out by year's end. Now, one of the things that we know, because they interviewed over a thousand people, there's more than a million documents, as you stated, it's going to be a really long and a really interesting read. But how effective do you think that the select committee, you know, presented its case to the American people overall? And how do you think that history will remember them? And when I say them, I don't just mean the team, the January 6th committee, because personally, I think they were fabulous. Every single one of them, from Benny Thompson to Jamie Raskin to Lucia, I think, you know, they were all absolutely fantastic. But I'm talking about the people on the opposite side. Right. The Eric Trumps, the Laura Trumps, the, you know, uh, the Oath Keepers, the Donald Trumps of the world, all of these bad actors that were involved, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Josh Hawley at the time. How do you think that history will ultimately remember them? You know, I hope history remembers them accurately, and that's going to be up to the historians. But, you know, we have insurrectionists in Congress. We just do. Some of them have been reelected, right? And here's something I think we should stay tuned for. Um, when they, when the swearing in of the new Congress happens in January, there will be an opportunity for members of Congress to object to the seating of other members of Congress if they believe they participated in the insurrection. Why? Because the 14th Amendment expressly disqualifies somebody from sitting in Congress if after taking an oath of allegiance to the United Congress? States, you This is six months ago. How come they don't allow me to make a, a uh, clip? ...insurrection or give aid and comfort to those who do, which members of Congress did, some of them. So I think there is a battle brewing um, that will play out 
around the time the new Congress is sworn in. I hope, I hope history, history will look um, kindly on the J6 committee. I mean, I, I think they did a remarkable job with what limited time they 